So last night we started kind of the series that we're doing over this weekend where I'm talking about what it means that for the Christian and for the people of God, the way up for us is really a way down. And the reason that we can kind of verify that the last two nights is we looked at Jesus. And we found that He's one who took on flesh and He came down and what we saw Him doing is going into the darkest places. And hopefully what you saw in that, if you haven't seen it before, or what you were reminded of, is that it really doesn't matter um, how far gone you think you might be. And it doesn't matter um, when you look inside and you see some of the most grotesque things, that Jesus is one who loves to go there. Because He loves to bring healing. And He loves to bring forgiveness. And what He leaves us as are people who stand before God. We just sing about it in that unbelievable song that we now stand before the throne of God because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. And what we talked about this morning is that nothing can take that away. And so we're asking that question, if nothing can take that away, then what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? What does it mean for the rest of, what is my life going to look like? What does it mean for me that the way up may not look like the way up for the rest of the world, but it may look like a path downward. And so tonight, I want to take really an example of that from Scripture. We're going to go back into the Old Testament. And I want to look, if you, if you want to start turning there, if you, if you want to read along, we're going to go to Amos. So some of you froze up a little bit. You're like, I don't know what that is. Um, one of the minor prophets kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, um, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. And what I want to talk about is the fact, really is something that I think is one of the easiest ways for us um, to kind of miss the bigger picture. I think that God's people did it really easily. And He sends a prophet to call them out on it because He loves them. And I want to ask that question of us, is it, how do we kind of miss, you know, we, we talked this morning about all these voices that are telling us what we should be and what we should do. Um, what do we do in the midst kind of of our of the blessing that God has given us, of the prosperity that He showered upon us? Um, where, where are the areas that are easy for us to ignore and easy for us to miss? So we're going to look at that uh, tonight in Amos. Um, we're going to start in chapter 2. I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 2, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 5. So Amos chapter 2 and starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the, the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on, armament, on garments that are taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And then if you turn over just a couple of pages to Amos chapter 5, and starting um, in verse 21, I'll read down through verse 24. And this is God talking... I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen. This is God's Word. Um, He gives it tonight to us once again because He wants us to know who He is. He wants... Um, This is how he comes close to us tonight, and so let's pray that he would help us to understand. Father, we we thank you that we can be here in this place. We thank you for the beauty that we are surrounded by. We thank you for all around us that there are reminders that you are a God who is creative, and you are a God who is loving, and we've seen it um, through friendships, we've seen it through the songs that we've sung, um, that you are a God who loves to to forgive and to give us mercy. And so, Father, tonight, as we look at this passage, what we hear is that um, we hear some hard words. And what we know is that just like your people that you sent Amos to, that it's easy for us to miss things as well. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this, that we might think of our lives um, maybe a little bit differently. We might think of the places that you might send us, um, the people you might send us to, the relationships you might you might have for us, waiting for us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to those things tonight. We ask that you might receive more glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know if some of you have maybe heard of the name Ruby Bridges. Does anybody know Ruby Bridges? Ruby Bridges was, back in, in 1960, uh, she was six years old, and she became the first... Um, woman, African-American girl, to, to attend an all-white public school. This was in New Orleans, Louisiana, and as you can imagine, uh, none of us, I don't know if any of us in this room were maybe alive then, but none of you that were there especially, but you can imagine and you've read and you've studied this in school to some degree and you've seen movies, and you know that not everyone was really excited about Ruby Bridges going to school. And she found this out, um, you know, very much the hard way because as she had to be escorted to school, um, not even by the local police, but by, because they weren't entirely on board either, but she had to be escorted to school by federal marshals. And as she got close to the school, and she recounts this in her own words, that as a little six-year-old girl who lived in New Orleans, she thought, you know, I wonder if Mardi Gras is going on. Because there's a huge crowd of people, and they're all shouting and screaming, and they're throwing things. And that was, in her mind, all she could think of is this great party that she knew. But as she got closer, what she realized was that they were all shouting and screaming at her. And she said that every day as she had to be escorted past this crowd, um, there would be a woman who would show up. And she, she remembers this woman because she would threatened every day to poison her. Six-year-old. Said another person would show up and they had a a little miniature black doll in a coffin. And they just hold it up. And she would enter in, she would silently just pass through this crowd and she would enter into an empty school because all the white parents had taken their children out of school. And she would sit in an empty classroom with just her teacher and she would go about her day. And there was one day in particular where she was making her way through school to school and the crowd was still there. 
that she, her teacher was watching from the inside and looking out the window as she did every day because she was concerned about this little girl for obvious reasons. And as she's passing through the crowd, she noticed that Ruby stops and she kind of turns and faces the crowd and the teacher can't hear her, but she sees that her lips are moving. And she sees that the crowd is even kind of becoming more incensed because of this. And so as Ruby gets into the school, the teacher's like, Ruby, like, what in the world were you doing? She's like, what? She's like, you, you stopped and you were talking to the crowd. And she was like, I wasn't talking to the crowd. She said, yeah, I was watching from the window and I saw you and I saw you stop and you were, your lips were moving. And she was like, what were you saying? She was like, I wasn't talking to them. She said, every day when I, when I come to school, before I get to the crowd, my mom had taught me to, to pray and to pray for the crowd. And I got there and I was in the middle of them and I remember that I hadn't prayed yet. And so she said, I stopped and I prayed. And the teacher said, well, what did you pray? And she said, I just prayed that God would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And every time I hear that story, I, I can't help but ask myself the question because we're so easily deceived. We are so easily deceived. I can't help but ask myself the question, if I lived in New Orleans in 1960, where would I have been? And what would I have been doing? And would I have been doing it in the name of Jesus? Because I imagine on that day, if you had gone around and you had pulled that crowd and you had said, do you guys go to church? Are you Christians? I imagine that most of the people there would have, would have just given a resounding yes. We, of course we're Christians. And that's even the reason that we're here that we have a really large capacity for being deceived. And it, isn't, it, isn't it just like God to send one of the most insignificant, smallest people into the midst of the crowd to show them where they are blind? To show them how they have been deceived? Isn't it just like God to send a six-year-old little black girl from Tylertown, Mississippi into this crowd of people. And isn't it just like God to send a prophet who was a shepherd, who was a farmer, from a hick town called Tekoa, a few miles south of Jerusalem, into the midst of his people so that he might deliver a message to them and tell them, you're blind. You're missing, you're missing something that's huge. And so I want to ask this question to start with tonight and go, what was God so upset about in this passage? And you heard the words that I read, and we don't need to be afraid of reading those words. We need to listen to those words. You heard the words of God. When, whenever God says, I hate something, we should probably like want to know what that is, right? And God says, I, I hate this. And I'm very upset. And I want to say just from the right at the beginning, what, why God is so upset, and then back up and sort of unpack that for us. And the reason that God is upset is this, is that He, he is disgusted by those who take His grace and take His favor and continue throughout religious practices and rituals while at the same time abusing and neglecting those who are in need. 
that that's not me saying that, that that's from this passage, that this is what God is saying to His people, is He's saying, when you engage just simply, once again, in your religious rituals, and you assume things about me, and you take my grace for granted, while you're simultaneously neglecting people around you who need your help, He says, that disgusts me. So, let's, let's unpack that for a minute. Let's, let's start by, and with this. These are God's people, right? He loves them. He, he delivered them out of bondage. He delivered them out of slavery continually. He has gone before them in battle. That He has lavished them with favor. That He has lavished with them with grace. That He loves these people. And this is why He sends a prophet to His people. It's because He loves them. It's because he wants them to see that they're, they're really missing something. And he wants to show them what they're missing. Because this was a time in Israel when Israel was in the midst of immense prosperity. That everyone, that they, they were experiencing prosperity like they had never seen before. That everyone was fat and happy and everyone was celebrating because they really what they felt like is that God's favor um, was exhibiting them, itself in this way. That surely he's happy with us because look. We're all doing really, really well. And everything is going really, really well for us. And everything looks really, really good for us. And so he sends this guy named Amos who really is like, he's not, he's not a trained, like he didn't go to prophet school or anything like that. I mean, he was from this, he's a shepherd and a, and a farmer from Tekoa who says in his own words that I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet. Um, he is a prophet because he becomes one. But he's just kind of saying, like, this isn't my gig. God just plucked me out and sent me in the midst of you in order to tell you this message. And so his first words on the scene when he comes to the people of God, when he comes to Israel, is that he says, God roars from Zion. And I can imagine that all of Israel, who was really feeling pretty confident at that time, was probably like, woohoo, yeah, let's hear it. Who is God roaring against? Like, we love this, you know? Like, who is He going to judge? And so, Amos begins to tell them about the sins of Damascus. And he tells them about the sins of, of Edom and Gaza and Tyr. And he tells them about the, the Ammonites and the Moabites. And I imagine after all of those, they're like, absolutely, these people are corrupt. These people deserve judgment. Um, we denounce them as well. You were right, Amos. You little hick from this small town that we've never heard of. Thank you for coming to tell us about the sins of these other nations. And then he gets to the point where he starts to talk about Judah. And everyone starts to get a little more quiet. And then he starts to talk about Israel. And you can hear a pin drop. Because what he's basically saying is that despite the fact that you're doing a lot of things that still look right, that some of the things that you're engaging in and a lot of the things that you're ignoring are actually so overwhelming to God that He sent me to pronounce this to you. And what does He say? He said, I read just a little bit of, of this to you from chapter 2 because I wanted to give you a taste of it. Is that He says this, but He's giving kind of a big picture of corruption. And if you go through the Minor Prophets, what you'll find is that God is always sending prophets to His people and He's kind of telling them these things. And Amos kind of gives this one 
overarching picture is he says they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And basically they're selling people into slavery, kind of just this apathetic sort of, um, yeah, you owe me money. It may be like $15, but I'll sell you into slavery for the rest of your life. Not a big deal. That there's a coldness uh, towards those that it's, it's trapping people in a cycle that they can't get out of. That instead of um, helping the afflicted, their business practices, even from what I read, were actually enforcing um, the fact that they were trampling the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth. And it may not have been that you know they were doing anything, they're like going into their homes and stealing from the poor, but simply they had they had made systems that only benefited themselves and just continued to trample and to use up and to keep down those who were already down. That they were involved in, you know, this is sort of, I read this one line in chapter 2 that was sort of like really uncomfortable. They're involved in cultic prostitution. And it's really interesting to me, this is a big deal, and it's a big deal in a lot of the other prophets, and they talk about this, and it's not that it's not a big deal to Amos, but he doesn't really stay there very long throughout the whole book, and he jumps right back in to really what he wants to talk about. And he says that, you know, basically they, they, drink, they, they take the garments that are given in pledge from the needy, so needy would give their garments in pledge to say, I'm going to pay back this debt. But it says that they would use those to basically lay before altars, and they wouldn't give those garments back at night to cover up the needy, which is actually a law that was given um, back in the Torah. And he's just giving this picture of, like, you're cold. Like, you've been shown, like, mercy, that you've been shown grace, and yet your heart towards those who are hurting is, is just become hard. It's become cold that they're getting... Most commentators you know, talk about the fact that they drink the wine of those who've been fined is that it means that they're getting rich off the fines of the poor so much so that they're like, you know, they've got these wine cellars because they're nickel and diming these people who are already being nickel and dimed by everyone else. And you know, I can't go through the whole book, but you kind of, you get the picture, right? That, that this is the overarching offense that in the, in the midst of their prosperity... In the midst of the time when everything seems to be going so well, they're continuing in their religious observances. They're also doing a little bit of cultic prostitution and temple worship on the other side. And they're also, in the midst of this, they're taking advantage of and they're trampling and they're neglecting those who are in need. And they're, and they're using the ripping off the poor in order to make their lives even more comfortable. And you hear God's response to them in chapter 5. It's astounding. It, it's like almost if, you know, if God sent a prophet here tonight, and it's almost like if he said to us, he's like, turn your, turn your guitar, turn the sound system off. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your songs. Quit singing them. I don't want to hear all this religious talk. I don't want you to over-spiritualize things. I'm sick of it. Says, but I want what I want is for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Instead of causing further oppression, is what God is saying to his people. Instead of causing further oppression, his people should be this conduit for mercy 
to those who are in the lowest places of society. That because I've shown you mercy, that what should flow out of the temple is like a raging river of mercy. And where does water go? Water always goes down. It goes always down to the lowest point. And God is telling His people that this is exactly what I want for you. And it makes us, it makes us uncomfortable, right? It makes, us uncom- it makes me uncomfortable to read this. This is why I wanted to talk about it tonight. Because I think that if there's a way in which we can be deceived, I think in a lot of ways we're crazy if we don't talk about the fact that we live in an incredibly prosperous country and the fact that we are incredibly prosperous people just in the sense that we're in college and we have the time and the energy and the money to come here for the weekend and all of those things, that we are, we are prosperous and there's, that's fine. But if we are, that means we have to be aware of, of passages like this because it's not just this. It's also all throughout the New Testament, Jesus, I mean, plainly talks about this over and over and over again in the New Testament. The one who was rich, who became poor, would say things that make us like really squirm in our seats. He would say things very um, boldly and without caveat, like sell your possessions and give to the needy. And provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or you go, okay, well that was just Jesus, what about Paul? Paul says, if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content, but those who desire to be rich fall into destruction and ruin, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Or you go over to James, and James says this. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And he goes on to say, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But he says to the people he's writing to, but you have dishonored the poor man. And so the reason that I'm bringing this up is that I think that this is a problem with God's people all throughout Scripture, and it could be a problem that we need to always keep before us and be aware of as well. That this could be one of the ways for us that we go the way up is actually down, and this is maybe what it looks like. And so it's this problem in Amos' day, it's a problem in Jesus' day, it's a problem in Paul's day, and it extends really kind of all throughout Scripture. Way back from specific laws in Deuteronomy that said, if there's a stranger who comes to your gate, it says, open wide your hand to them. Give. All the way to where Jesus says, if somebody, you know, you know, asks you for something, give it to them. It makes us super un- uncomfortable. Um, and of course, you can't forget that the one who is saying the super uncomfortable things is also one who left the comfort of his home and was born in a stable and who lived the life of a carpenter and who was mainly associating with people who didn't have very much. And he was drawn to them to those who were in need. That he had no place, he said, to lay his head. How easy it, uh, is it, it is for us, how easy it is for me, maybe I should say, to forget that he became poor so that I might be truly rich. And you go, well, okay, so why, like, what do I do with that? Like, why should I care? 
And I, was, I just want to say this, first of all, and please hear me. I said it this morning too, but the response to this cannot be guilt. Like, the guilt is a horrible motivator for loving people, okay? It just doesn't really work very well at all. That the response to this is not guilt, or the response to this is not um, that if I do these things, then it will appease God. Do you know that Jesus died for your apathy and your lack of love for those who are in need? He died for that. Right? He's already paid the price for it, so you just feeling mad about it and feeling guilt about it so that you, that might motivate you is not really the point at all. Well, what's the point then? Why should we care? Well, the Gospel shows us that Jesus, when He found us, and we saw this vividly last night, that when he found us, that we were poor and we were in need. And he says to his disciples, you know, you can do nothing without me. That everything that you have has been given to you by me. That I possess all things and I've brought you into the riches of my kingdom. This is what I would call just sort of basic gospel logic. And the basic, basic gospel logic just goes like this. And it's so, I, I think we're tempted to overcomplicate things sometimes instead of just looking at it this way. Because Jesus loved me when I was poor and wretched and needy and helpless. And Jesus gave me every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places under heaven. It, he's promised to provide for me. He's told me I don't have to worry about the future. That that should fuel my love for people who are different than me, who are harder to love, who are needy, who are poor, in all the, all the senses of that word. It's not just financial. In fact, Jesus says in His own words, in Matthew 25, He says that it's actually a measure for understanding how much you know that He has loved you. That He says how we treat the poor really shows what we think of him. He says, you know, if you visited the prisoner, you visited me. If you gave them a cup of water, you did it to me. And what Jesus is saying is not this. He's not saying, if you treat the needy well, then I will love you. He's saying, if you've been loved by me, then you will treat the needy well. And you will treat the poor well. And I think, you know, for me to get this, I feel like I always have to remember. It's like I have to wake up every day and I have to remember the gospel again. And I have to remember this. And I have to remember that what I've been given in light of what I actually deserve. Because like every day when I wake up, all I want to think about is what I don't have. I want to think about how hard my day is going to be. I want to think about me, me, me. And while I'm not getting what I think I should get, and it's always helpful for me to think about what is before me today is very different than what I actually deserve. And you see, what happened to Israel is that Israel started to think as they grew in prosperity and as they grew in comfort, that they started to think, well, this is kind of what I've grown to expect. This is actually kind of what I deserve. And they forget that they've been shown mercy and they've been shown grace. And I was reading an, an interview not long ago from the creator of Breaking Bad. Any Breaking Bad fans in the room? Vince Gilligan. Um, and he's, he had this quote in there that just kind of popped out to me. He said that 
that his girlfriend, he says, she has this great line that I, that I like. She says that she can stand the thought that there's no heaven, but she can't stand the thought that there's no hell, because then, like, where's Hitler? And where's Pol Pot? There has to be some kind of payback. And for the Christian, what we're saying is that what I know I deserve is I deserve wrath. That I deserve, I'm the one who deserves punishment. And yet I've been given the opposite of that. That I've been given the prosperity of heaven. That I've been given the riches of His mercy. And the more that we understand what we actually deserve, the more beautiful grace actually becomes to us. And the more it begins to change us. But it's hard for us to even kind of consider the fact that even my successes and even my talents and even my gifts and even my money are all things that He has given to us. Because, you know, I mean, it's just natural for you to kind of go, I accomplished a few things, I do a few things. Um, it must be because, like, I studied really hard and I did this. And it's hard to, like, kind of think about the fact while I was born in a certain place with certain type of parents and they had certain type of means. And all of those things were orchestrated by the providence of God. And I had nothing to do with it. There's a fascinating sermon by America's greatest theologian, not Sammy Rose, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is, is considered by many the greatest theologian in America. And Jonathan Edwards has this beautiful sermon on Christian charity. And he reminds us of this fact that everything is given to us because of God's providence and how easy it is for us to forget this. And he says this, he says, few consider how their prosperity depends upon providence. That your money and your goods are not your own. They are only committed to you as stewards. To be used for him who committed them to you. A steward has no business with his master's good to use them in any way other than the benefit of his master and his family. Or according to his master's direction. You know, it, over and over in Scripture it says that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And what he's saying is that the proud are the ones who are stubborn because they think that all that they have comes from their own effort. That's what the definition of really being proud is. That all of what I have comes from my own effort and my own intellect and my own sacrifice when in reality all that I have comes from a God who has decided to be merciful to me. God opposes the proud. He calls them out because they fail to see that everything they have, their ability to think and to speak and to work and even the air that we breathe tonight into our lungs is, is graciously given to us by Him. It all belongs to Him and He's chosen tonight to give it to you out of His mercy. And so to love the poor or to love the needy is simply to confess that when God found me, that's who I was. That every day without His grace sustaining my life, that's who I am. And so to go along with religious ritual, and this is why He gets so upset, to go along while neglecting those who are in need, whether they're elderly or whether they're widowed or whether they're homeless or whether they're just impoverished by the fact that they are awkward and nobody else wants to be around them. is to forget the way that God found me in the midst of my poverty, whatever it looked like, and He embraced me. And He moved toward me, and He didn't move away from me. And the beauty of that is, the more that we do this, and you know this, 
when you begin to move towards people who are in need, in the vast array of the needs that exist in this world, you know what it always does to you? It always reminds you of your own need. And it always reminds you that I cannot believe God has been merciful to me. This is part of the reason that he's upset with his people because they're missing out. They're trampling the poor instead of inviting them in because they need to worship alongside them. Because the poor are a picture of who they are as well. And so you go, well, how do I, like, how do we respond to this? I've already said, like, don't, don't leave here tonight and just kind of go, I'm supposed to feel guilty about this. But, like, you've missed the point. That we respond to this by going back to grace and lavishing and, and celebrating the fact that God is a God who is merciful to people like me. And the more that I celebrate that and the more I relish in that, the more my heart begins to soften. That I wake up every morning and yes, I go, what I really deserve today is bad things to happen like bam, 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 bam. And what I actually get is knowing that my inheritance is secure in heaven forever because of what Jesus has done for me. So we respond by lavishing ourselves more and more and more growing more deeply into God's grace. I think we respond by, by saying, you know, there's particular, for those of us here who are Christians, you have like particular sins that you kind of confess over and over again. And sometimes for us what that does is that we kind of, these are the only thing, problems we think we have in our life. And they kind of overshadow everything else. I'm not telling you not to confess those sins. But you kind of harp on them. And what I'm saying is that for those of us who live as Christians in a very prosperous place, and those of us who are susceptible to maybe even trampling those in need, that maybe this is something that should just be brought a little further up that list. That maybe just bringing it to our attention um, is something that we need to do more often. And you go, well, then what can I, what do I do about that? What does that look like? I'm a college student. I really don't have, like, money. Are you telling me to give money? I'm going to pass around a basket in a minute. No, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> One of the most beautiful pictures of this, I don't know why, like, I was walking over here tonight, and I thought of this, is one of my friends who's also a campus minister, in, in his campus, they have, his students have just, They've, become, they've come to have this heart for those who are on this campus who have disabilities. And one of the things they do, and I was, this was brought to my, I didn't know that this was happening, it was brought to my attention because he was on the phone one day and he was talking to one of the students and he was trying to arrange, he forgot that they have, they have several blind students in their campus ministry. Some are Christians, some are not. But they're there because those students walk those blind students to class every day. And they walk them to lunch every day. And those are people who are needy in a way that I'm not needy, in the way that you're not needy. And so what I'm not telling you tonight is simply like, let's empty your pockets right now. It's just to, it's just to open, it's almost just to open your eyes. And say, who are the people even on my campus that are very unlovable? That nobody else is moving towards? And doesn't it mean that as a Christian, that by definition, because God has moved towards me, that maybe... I should move towards them? Doesn't it mean that what I'm studying and what I'm thinking about doing with my life and whether it's going into law or whether it's going into business or whether it's going into medicine or whatever, doesn't it mean that I begin to think about it 
in a way that is thinking not just simply about what it gets me in the end, but what it does to produce good for all people. And I'm really, and you, you have this opportunity right now to start thinking about that. And that's not just to lay some sort of pressure or burden. That might mean what you're doing day in, day out to a lot of people doesn't look very important at all. Um, but you are finding ways to go, this is important to me and how am I moving towards people who are in need? It might mean that we realize that to bear others' burdens technically means that we also become burdened ourselves. That we also become burdened ourselves with their burden. That's like the definition of to bear somebody else's burden. I like to think of bearing somebody else's burden as thinking about how I can schedule it into my time so it doesn't affect anything else in my life. That's not the definition, right? Jesus took on flesh and he came and he bore our burden and he bore our pain. And what if we, and I think the church has in the past, and I think in many ways this is so important for the future that the church becomes famous for its love of those who are in need. That many Christians just want to argue and they want to fight and they want to just say, let me just yell at you and tell you what I'm about. What if our witness to the world is that we love those who are most hurting? That we love those who are most outcasts? It might mean for us that we just swim in different waters and we think about the fact that it's just so easy for me to always stay within a group of people who are exactly like me. In fact, our society is just set up in a way that even when you buy a home, and even when you move into a city, and everything that you do, it's really arranged around the fact that you, unless you put a lot of effort to it, only have to interact with people who are kind of just like you. And that means as a Christian, I have to fight against that. Or otherwise, I'm going to be lulled to sleep. And I can't spell out, and I, it's not my job to, it's, I can't spell out all the specifics of that. But I do think, as I was thinking about this topic of what it means for us, that the way up is the way down, that I think that this is a pretty big issue for us. And I think it's something that we actually don't really talk about a lot, because I do think that there's this temptation to go, we're going to make people feel guilty, and they're going to walk around out and feel bad. And that's not what I'm trying to do at all. It's going, how does love motivate us to love in extraordinary ways. It's very, very simple in the end. I love because I've been loved. I move towards the darkness because Jesus found me in the darkness. I take the lower road because Jesus took the lower road to find me. Let me pray. Father, I pray once again that you might open our eyes and open our ears that we might see and we might hear. I pray that as you put us in the places where we live and where we move and you put us on our campus that you just you would not allow our hearts to grow cold to those around us who are hurting, to those who are suffering. Um, but Father, I pray that just as you have moved towards us in Christ, that we would move towards those as well that we might be known for our mercy, that we might be known for the lavishness of our love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.